Well, this is Art Speaks, a presentation of the William King Museum of Art in Abingdon, Virginia. I'm your host, David Thomas, and our guest today is Dr. Michael Fowler from uh, East Tennessee State University. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me, uh, David. I'm, I'm glad to be here on the program. I know that your specialty is art history, so won't you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, your academic background, and how you got to East Tennessee State? Sure. Uh, so I actually am not a native uh, to the region of the Appalachian Highlands. I actually hail from uh, a younger range of mountains in the west of the United States, uh, the Rocky Mountains and Colorado specifically. Uh, but I made my way in short from Colorado to the Appalachian Mountains via the Northeast, where I did my graduate training in art history, religious studies, and, and archaeology, uh, first uh, at uh, Harvard and Tufts, and then ultimately did my PhD in New York City at Columbia University. So, of course, this is a very big change in context, having moved from very urbanized, very densely populated uh, places uh, to uh, a much more uh, sparsely populated, greener <laughs> uh, context in which we're, we are now living, the splendor that is the Appalachian uh, uh, mountains. So actually, prior to coming to ETSU, I actually knew very, very, very little about Northeast Tennessee and uh, Southwest Virginia. I had never even been to this part of the country, but uh, what brought me here was basically a job a position that had opened uh, towards the end of my uh, graduate training. So what I do at East Tennessee State University, I work within the Department of Art and Design. I am a, one of our resident art historians, and I offer general education and more specific classes for our uh, design and, and studio art and art history students on the global history of art. And what I really seek to do is introduce students to the diversity of cultures around the world and to the critical role that visual arts play and continue to play in expressing and shaping and responding to people's ideals and realities. Um, and if I may, I would add that what draws me to art history in particular is that human beings and even our earliest ancestors, we are image makers. We communicate visually and symbolically back tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of years ago to our earliest ancestors, we've been making visual art. And although we may have had language, dance, music, other kinds of expressive media, the oldest surviving form of human symbolic communication is art. So what I really try to get my students excited about is that when you go on this journey, these art historical journeys with me, what we're doing is having a conversation with millennia and millennia of human beings about what troubled them, interested them, inspired them in their time and space in ways in which that story kind of universally applies, but also ways that specific people have specific things we need to attune ourselves to um, and recognize. So that really excites me as an art historian. Well, you know, I've, I've heard people when you talk about the arts and uh, they say, well, I like music, but I'm really not into art. And somebody said, well, think of art as music for the eyes. <laughs> that was a good, a good way to transition there. Well, the uh, I, I know there's degrees in like BFA, Bachelor's of Fine Arts. Is is there actually one field that's where you're actually teaching art or uh, about the actual process of art? And then there's art history, which is more devoted to what's happened in the past and what trends are and and everything you do. 
Exactly. I'm in a department where actually I'm fortunate because it's not typical that art historians necessarily work within an art and design department. So we do have studio art and graphic design faculty who are teaching their respective disciplines, really the materials, the techniques, the processes, both technically but also conceptually, that go into forming work. And I, as an art historian, also investigate those questions uh, with my students, um, whether they are preparing to be artists or designers or art historians. But we're also trying to get people to understand, artists and historians alike, the way in which their work is part of this conversation that I referenced earlier, that you, you can enrich your work all the more as an artist or designer, if you are more consciously and deliberately forming your work so that it in a way uh, quotes or draws upon or selectively appropriates uh, different aspects of history to show that you are actually contributing to a dialogue rather than being in a monologue <laughs> as an artist. So I often, the distinction I often make is that my studio and graphic design counterparts are often teaching students to compose works and I'm teaching people how to look at a completed work and decompose it, ah. actually work backwards mm -hmm. and actually try to figure out what those decisions were that an artist or a designer made that resulted in the finished product and why those choices in terms of composition or concept were actually made working backwards. So I'll try to get a plug in for William King here, but I mean, do is William King one of your... Uh sources for uh, student interactions with art or I mean do, do you like bring classes to William King or I'm, I would be very happy to give a shout out to the William King uh, Museum of Art because it is a centrally important art institution in our region for a variety of reasons. Uh, part of the earlier illusion to having come, in, come from New York City to teach here is that I moved from a place as a student and as a burgeoning educator where I was surrounded with museums, right, with, with extensive encyclopedic collections of art from the past to the present all around the globe. And coming to Appalachia, we have a lot of rich cultural history here, but what we don't have a lot of are close by museums to get people in front of art. And so there, the William King Museum really uh, meets a critical need, uh, partly in bringing traveling exhibitions like the recent Bernini and the Roman Baroque show, which I brought students to and was a really great opportunity for local folks to see Baroque art from as far away as Italy, right? Um, but also the other side of that is getting students to realize and see themselves in the history of art. And a lot of the recent work in art history has been to question the canon, to question what we value as important, right? The centrality of Europe, questioning whether we, why we focus only on male artists or only on artists of Euro-American descent rather than other right races and ethnicities. So part of this is this project of diversifying our appreciation of human contributions creatively, right, to our collective history. And where that comes in with William King is also getting students, most of whom that I teach are from this region, right. to realize that Appalachia is rich culturally and artistically and actually plays an important role too in the story of this, um, the development of this nation. Um, and it's not a story that has often been told yeah. in traditional art histories. It's been rather marginalized, to be honest. So what I love too about William King is its permanent collection of art and craft 
from Southwest Virginia, Northeast Tennessee, get students in front of really great examples of traditional and more kind of modern and contemporary examples of what people in this region since pre-European contact to the present have been engaging in. Right. Our professor at Emory and Henry, I was speaking to him recently about bringing students to William King, and he has students who are going to be majoring in some aspect of art and coming to William King was their first museum visit. I mean, they are in college. Of course, I grew up around here, so uh, I, I was just, I thought, well, that's, that's crazy. But I thought back to my childhood, and I, I was probably um, late high school before I ever got to go to an art museum. So we are, uh, William King tries to be that regional center that people from, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles away uh, we serve that audience, try to serve that audience. And so having that here for um, this local population is really one of our true missions. Right. And David, I would add uh, to that, that what I love about William King um, as an institution is that although it, it has its roots in certain heritages of the region, culturally, it doesn't tell the story of Appalachia as if we have not changed since the agrarian 19th century, that we are a modern region of people who change, who are connected to the global world. And that's reflected in the more contemporary exhibits that right. are put on in the other galleries where we can see that what Appalachia is, we, we are, I, th I like to say we're kind of walking with our back to the future. So we're moving into the future. We're always conscious of our roots, but we're not defined and predetermined by them. Right, we can kind of selectively connect to them and redefine continually what it is that Appalachia and Appalachians are. Right, right? and I will say that I actually put on a recent exhibition in the panoramic gallery of the William King Museum, actually on the question, what is Appalachia? And that, that student artwork we put on in that conceptual question was actually the result of a course that I taught on the history of Appalachian art, where oh. students really, for the like you said, it's not just getting into museums for the first time. Students coming from this region had never had an opportunity to study their own art history right. until that course. So it was eye-opening for students to actually get a chance to see to be empowered to study and contribute to that ongoing story of the other region, but also to see that it's valuable. And despite its marginalization, it actually has an important role to play in how we narrate who we are um, nationally and, and even beyond. Right. And we, William King deliberately tries to, um, I think every two years, we have an exhibit called From These Hills, which is contemporary artists to show that William King's not a collecting museum. The only collections we maintain are cultural heritage related, which are the past, but to show, to try to show that, uh, you know, like you say, that's, that's not our total makeup. We're continuing uh, to master the arts. And so we have that um, exhibit and always have a, 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 I think a curator from the High Museum was the last one to select the art. And they always comment on what a nice selection they got to choose from and kind of how surprised they are that <laughs> that, that art is, is that alive in our area. So that's great. So tell us, so since you've taught a course on uh, art in Appalachia, <laughs> why don't you give us a few of your uh, syllabus main points of what, what you find unique or different here than uh, other places that might have an art history? 
Well, that's actually conceptually answering what makes Appalachia distinct. I will say that any attempt to define Appalachia is always with a caveat or an asterisk. It's very difficult to make kind of definitive statements about what this region is because it's always from a certain perspective of one who's defining. I would say some of the things that impressed my students in studying the history of Appalachia is uh, the resourcefulness of people, not necessarily um, due to poverty, but of course poverty is part of our story, but it's not all of our story. Uh, resourcefulness, certainly. The value of community, questions of uh, connectedness versus isolation, right? These kinds of dynamics of how connected or less connected we are at different uh, parts in time. Of course, the enduring uh, value of uh, traditional crafts, but also as Appalachia begins to be further settled over the course of the 19th century and we begin to have uh, centers of art training beyond the kind of traditional apprentice and father-son kind of models or mother-daughter models, we are able to innovate and, and, and add to our story of, of art history in a way that in the late 18th century or 19th century, if you wanted a kind of art education of that kind, you had to go to places like Boston or Baltimore or Philadelphia, right? But as the 19th century uh, progresses, uh, we begin to have uh, more and more uh, formally, right, trained artists. So I don't want to say that, um, right, we like to think of folk or self-taught, right, visionary, all these kinds of arts as, as part of who we are. It's part of the story, but we also have fine art existing along craft, right, professional artists alongside so-called uh, self-taught artists. So it's a, it's a really rich uh, region, very diverse region. And one of the main takeaway points, aside from what we study, is the question of how we actually study Appalachia. And a big point and why we had the resulting exhibition at the William King where students made art and accompanying essays to actually explain the work that they made was that I am uh, very much in agreement with the East Tennessean uh, historian Elizabeth Catt in whose book, uh, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, Ooh, she narrates a whole history, a kind of socioeconomic history of the ways in which Appalachia has largely been misdefined, stereotyped, exploited in various ways by outsiders. And, and some of that includes the stereotypical ways that photography and film represent us as ignorant and backwards and uncultured, right? The poor, right? All of these stereotypes that can very easily come to mind when we think about our region. And what's part of pushing back against that and offering a, a remedy to those stereotypes, Kat says, and I agree, is getting Appalachians to turn away from the anonymous camera and to make their own images. Ah. Show the world who we are from an insider's perspective. Good advice. So you're listening to uh, Art Speaks on WEHC 90.7. FM, your Emory and Henry station. And our guest today is Dr. Michael Fowler from East Tennessee State. And we're kind of talking about the uniqueness of um, Appalachia from an art history standpoint, which is Michael's field of study and teaching. <laughs> and so I've always heard this legend that Appalachia was studied by, uh, by linguists and music historians because as the pioneers moved through and saw, settled back up in these hollows. Uh, and then the, all the subsequent people just kept moving through. So there was not a, not a lot of integration of new ideas. And so there are pockets of language 
use and uh, music styles that, that were just preserved here because there was not a lot of uh, integration. Is, is any of that true in art also? With respect to art, I mean, one of the points you actually mentioned is that this region is a crossroads, uh, quite literally in terms of the Great Road and people migrating in from places like Pennsylvania down and through into Southwest Virginia and in Northeast Tennessee. So people are moving here. And of course, there are people, native peoples who aren't moving here, who already occupy this region. And so Appalachia for me, if we're going to talk about a way in which anything uniquely comes out of it, it's through this uh, cross-fertilization of uh, European-derived um, peoples, right, of various backgrounds coming into this region, interacting with pre-existing um, indigenous uh, cultures, and always, however, with surprising connectedness and knowledge to what's going on in larger kind of artistic centers like Philadelphia or Boston or, um, or Baltimore, like I said. So you will get examples in, Will in William King, for example, of uh, decorative arts or furniture that has particular flair or touches, stylistic things that are typical of this region, uh, things like the fancy style uh, for Tennessee. But right. when you look at the underlying form of the object, let's say in, the, in, a, in a, a piece of furniture, it actually resembles in, in essential ways the fashionable furniture that's being made on the coast, right, right, in larger cities. So this is part of that difficult dynamic of, yes, we are away from the coast and the big cities as we're developing uh, in a kind of settlement period. And we have these individual stylistic details that, that characterize us. But a lot of the objects that those are incorporated with are, are showing still knowledge and connectedness to contemporary developments in larger, more urbanized areas. So it's, yes, separation, but also connectedness. It's, it's, it's a dynamic that I've tried to convey in the, in the course of my the class with the students is that it's being careful not to essentialize any one aspect of what we think Appalachia is, because as soon as we do that, there's a counterexample. Yes. <laughs> well, you mentioned um, um, the forms of um, uh, furniture making and so forth. And so when I think of art history, I think, well, paintings and sculptures and so forth. But is furniture design part of that field of study or any other artisan work that, that you would consider a good subject for art history? If you ask me, of course, I will speak as uh, myself as an art historian. I think that all manner of creative expression, materially and visually, counts within an, in, in art history. And that's partly what you just said is partly related to the problem of how certain cultures and periods of human history get omitted or marginalized in the history of art. Because if you're an art historian who's looking for oil on canvas paintings and sculpture and grand architecture as what merits study, you're not gonna find some of that in periods of our history here in the region. And so therefore we become a kind of cultural gap in a way, which is actually not the case. But if you widen your, your scope to include traditional fine arts and crafts uh, and other functional decorative or utilitarian objects uh, into the field of study, then that art history becomes much richer because in fact, fine art and, and popular forms of uh, creative expression they don't exist in vacuums. They are cross-pollinating and existing in a culture together, right? So studying them holistically, I think is the best approach. It, of course, it, it admits cultures that have been excluded due to very kind of Western European academic traditions of what art actually is. 
And ultimately for me, getting back to the definition of art, for me, art includes uh, problem solving, right? With respect to design, but it also includes right, the kind of aesthetic dimension. So even something like a, a vessel that you're going to use, right? A ceramic object that's going to fulfill a function in your home, it can be well-designed and beautiful. And the beauty, art doesn't have to be an aesthetic object that has no function other than just being looked at, right? That's one way of defining art, but I think the functional can coexist and often functional objects are very beautiful. You've, you've touched on something that's always been kind of a uh, mystery to me as we talk about craftsmen and then we talk about artisans. And I just wonder, is there a academic distinction there? I guess I think of artisans as maybe someone who is executing a craft, maybe for some utilitarian purpose, but add, wants to add a dimension of design or flair to it. Is So what is the correct interpretation? Here too, um, again, I would only speak for myself. Uh, there are as many definitions of art and artists and craftsmen or uh, person and artisan as there are scholars. Uh, for me, some of these, uh, these definitions are thorny because they go back to this Western academic tradition of art history that we've spoken about where the artist becomes this, in a modern sense, coming out of the early modern period, this kind of quasi- divine heroic figure who's autonomously expressing themselves right through whatever medium of choice that they have right so it, so this artist gets linked to this concept that the artist is an intellectual yeah. first and foremost whereas the artisan is someone who is not an intellectual and is skilled with using their hands okay right so this is not i'm not endorsing this distinction Right, but these are the kinds of biases that lurk behind words like artisan or craftsman or artist. Are these questions about creative autonomy, the expressiveness uh, of one's um, artwork, uh, the kind of intellectual dimension? But commonly, I would say that uh, art, uh, in a kind of contemporary sense, that we have turned for a while um, conceptually in the realm of art, that art does not have to be skilled. Right. Art does not actually have to be uh, technically expert uh, in order to be art anymore. I mean, since the ready-mades of the early 20th century, people like Duchamp. So art has taken an even more decisive turn towards the conceptual. Right. It's what is the idea, the concept that's animating and motivating this artwork. Right. Right. So that, in a way, uh, is a pretty predominant uh, element that people, when they're speaking about art, there is often the expectation that there is a kind of idea yeah. behind the object. Well, that's always been so fascinating. About, I, I'm an engineer by trade. So Leonardo da Vinci was, I mean, he was a great artist. He, his art alone is you know, enough to make him a renowned figure, but he was also an inventor and made models. I, mean, I got to see an exhibit in Venice, I think, of the, all the models he made. I mean, he was a craftsman. Uh, and that not only designed things, but, you know, made them. So, I mean, he, what a range of uh, skills there. I love that you bring up Da Vinci, David, because uh, when I teach Leonardo, I actually emphasize his scientific side, mm-hmm. that he's actually an engineer and an inventor, even if many of his designs are committed only to paper and are never actually realized, he was actually thinking about the physics and mechanics 
behind uh, the various contraptions that he was designing. And in fact, he leaves us far more of those kinds of designs than he does artworks, finished artworks. So by and large, right, you could teach Leonardo da Vinci in a very different way. And actually, when I teach even his paintings, I actually talk about the science behind his paintings, why it is that they look the way they do, what is Leonardo trying to do with the physics of light, how color is actually an expression of degrees of light and shadow, and trying to unify in a kind of optically theoretical sense to create a persuasive image with this, with the sense of realism, thinking about how light actually functions in a scientific way, right? So we can't separate Leonardo, the fine artist in quotations from Leonardo, the scientist, because throughout history, scientific discovery, right? Technical or technological developments have informed and shaped what's possible in the realm of art and craft, just as experimental artists have made discoveries that contribute to science, right, as well. So art and science, we like to separate these departments these days in modern universities, but the humanities and the sciences, they feed one another, right, and inform one another. Well, we've just got a few minutes left, so I um, was going to see if um, you could uh, tell us about your transition from New York to um, East Tennessee. Do you uh, do you still have to go back every so often and get some urban renewal so you can walk from one museum to another for a day? Or, <laughs> or, or have you found enough in East Tennessee to keep you occupied? Uh, I certainly uh, do. Um, COVID has been, um, has really kind of put a, a slow on that, but I do, regularly get out of the region, but I don't really regard it so much as uh, seeking out things that we that we don't have out, in, out of an absence as it is complementing what we have here with what's available elsewhere. So I do like to get, not necessarily to big cities, I do like the small regional and local museums that we have all over the country and even uh, internationally where you can find some pretty amazing works of art in these less well-known collections. So I definitely do that. I bring students on field trips outside the region as often as I possibly can too for the same uh, re reasons. But I've really put my roots down here. I bought a house pretty early <laughs> in Johnson City, and I'm actually uh, the vice chair of the Johnson City Public Art Committee. So I am committed to engaging the public with art uh, that is beautifying Johnson City. It is creating place and it's creating collaboration and community through the arts. And so for me, I'm trying to leverage my interest in art in multiple ways, not just as an educator, but to give back through volunteerism to this region, uh, bring, uh, supporting the work of local artists, but also bringing in regional and national and international artists artwork in the public sphere to also give, like William King Museum of Art, our residents, our people who inhabit this beautiful region, a chance to have art from pl different places come to them. Because of course, not everyone has the means to travel, right, to go see these things. So I'm, I, I am conscious of, my privilege in order to do that but i also want like the museum to get things closer to people right and uh, we are if you go by william king now and you'll see we're doing uh, a lot to try to make it more accessible we're putting in a whole new front entrance on the museum so that you don't have that awkward concrete set of steps that's let's look like some kind of a triathlon challenge or something but, so hopefully we too will uh, try to make art more accessible and Thank you, Michael, for all you do. 
thank you for being on Art Speaks and good evening. <laughs> Thanks, David. It's been a wonderful conversation and I look forward to, to speaking with you in the future.